It's time for Money for Lunch, where we feed your brain and your business with supersized portions of business and financial news. Now your host, Bert Martinez. My guest today is best-selling author Adam Markell, and he'll be talking about resilience, what it is, and how it can give you the competitive edge as well as strategies for how you and your teams can become more resilient. A little bit of background about Adam. Adam Markell is the best-selling author of Pivot, The Art of Science and Reinventing Your Career and Life, and the host of the Conscious Pivot podcast, where he shares his insights on pivoting and resilience. Adam Markell, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. I'm so happy to be a guest. Thanks. I'm excited to have you here. I think that uh, more than ever, this idea of resilience is uh, important because I think that, uh, you know, you hear about things like perseverance and, and, and being resilient and all these other things, uh, but I think it's, it's uh, kind of tough to pinpoint. It, you know, unlike math, one plus one equals two, but how do you build resilience? So I'm excited to, to, to share this uh, topic with everybody and, and uh, help people build their resilience. Well, I mean, it, for one thing, Bert, it's, um, I think a lot of people define resilience as that ability to get back up again. And I think in many ways, that's, that's just a piece of the equation. In fact, many people think that resilience is all about the physical and how they can just simply endure. In fact, in companies all across the world, uh, for many, many years, I think they've been driving their employees to just sort of be able to endure longer hours, more work, you know, do less, do, do more with less, do more and more with less and less. And that's really defined the culture in so many ways. And what that's created is a culture of exhaustion, a culture of burnout. And, and now in the midst of the, the COVID pandemic, the crisis and all the things that are changing all around us, we've got to reevaluate what that all looks like. Um, we, we look at resilience very differently. We've done a lot of research. We've worked with hundreds of companies, studied thousands of employees, and have found that resilience is, is quite a bit more than just the ability to endure. Yeah. So, all right. So uh, let's talk about it because immediately, you know, I think of resilience, uh, you know, Rocky starts playing in the back of my mind. And, and uh, you know, I think that's a, a, a fairly... Uh, uh, common example. So why don't you define what is resilience? When you think of resilience, give us your definition. Well, well it's so funny too, when you bring up Rocky, because I, I remember seeing that movie when I was a kid, my dad took me to the theater to see it. And I remember getting out of the theater, just like running up the street with my arms over my head, singing, you know, doing the, the Rocky theme song. And, you know, he had to finally corral me and get, get me in the car, calm me down. You know, I was all worked up. But the thing about Rocky that you bring up is that Rocky gets knocked down and gets back up. God knows how many times, dozens of times he gets knocked down, gets back up, gets knocked down, gets back up. And he, he wins our hearts, but he loses the fight. And as I like to say to my, uh, my old buddies from, from New York or South Jersey, he don't look too good in the end either. You know? So um, that's the model of, of resilience that so many people are aware of. And, and what the research shows is that resilience is really not just physical, it's mental, it's emotional. It's physical, of course, and it's even spiritual. And so when we think about resilience, how it is that we create 
resilient individuals and resilient workplaces, we think in terms of that, that MEPS structure, that mental, emotional, physical, uh, spiritual structure. And in many ways, we, we have boiled down resilience to three things, to three specific traits. It's reframe, the ability to reframe, to reset, and to regenerate. And so we can, we can dive into each of those just a little bit, but, uh, but if you could do those three things, if you can learn how to do those th three things. If you can train other people to do those things, if you can model for people in your organization or even in your home, so, you know, resilience is important everywhere, not just at work, but it, in our relationships at home and, and with our kids and with our friends, et cetera. And if you can model these three traits, the likelihood is that not only will you be able to be resilient, which I define as not just the ability to get back up, but the ability to actually create momentum. So out of adversity, you're able to create momentum, not just surviving in other words, but to be able to turn that situation into something that is actually a, a tremendous benefit to the bottom line of your, your life, the bottom line uh, for your business as well. Yeah, I love that, I love it. Okay, and so th those three were, were reframe. Reset. Reset. And regenerate. And regenerate. So yeah, let, let's let's kind of walk through those. So uh, reframe, I'm somewhat familiar with, uh, but why yep. don't you go ahead and explain to everybody what a reframe is? Our our version of a reframe is is in any situation, you've got to be able to switch your mind and your focus into neutral. It, it more often than not, the reason that we're miserable is because our minds are giving us a hard time. We're unhappy. Um, or we're reactive, or we have an attitude, a bad attitude, or we're in a pissy mood or whatever, whatever is the issue. It's usually stemming from, from our thinking, from our thoughts. So the first most important thing when you're faced with a challenge of any kind, whether it's the challenge that you're facing in this moment or as just as importantly, the challenge that you'll be facing in the future. See, resilience is something we've got to prepare for now. We create our resilience. We develop our resilience now before we need it. That's the most important thing. And whatever you're dealing with in the moment, you've got to first get to neutral. So the reframe is essentially is to, to shift into neutral, which what neutral looks like is you're in a place where you're not judging whether something is good or it's bad, whether it's fair or it's unfair, whether it's true or false. And, and I know that's not an easy thing to do. And so that, that neutral is what we call a pause. You take a pause. And, and if you can pause long enough, then you can get to the second step in the reframing process. And that is to, to actually ask questions, to ask what's the meaning? Is there meaning in what's going on? My grandmother was a very important person in my life. She's gone many, many years now, but I think of her often. And, and what I often think about is her, the way she used to say to me, you've got to find the meaning in situations. Mm. You know, it's, it's so easy to, to judge something as, as being, um, threatening to you or something that, that might help you or whatever the judgment might be. But to find the meaning is, is, the, is really the key in all of it. Um, I think it was Viktor Frankl that wrote this book, Man's Search for Meaning, which yeah. is such a powerful book because he wrote that book or the, the, the genesis of the book was started when he was a surviving the concentration camp in, that he, he was uh, detained in in World War II right. in Germany. So uh, to find meaning in the most horrible situations you can even come up with is really one of the, the, the higher level ways of being. And, and that's one of the most important things when it comes to reframing. So first you, you pause, then you ask what the meaning is. And lastly, you find the creative opportunity. That's 
really ultimately the key is to choose. You know, our life in many ways is just a product of the choices and the decisions that we've made. Sure. And so often we'll, we'll look at a situation and we look at where it is again that it will, can be threatening to us, where it could cause us harm. And very rarely when we're feeling insecure or vulnerable, do we ask ourselves, what's the opportunity here? What's the creative opportunity? So three things again, you pause to get to neutral, no judgment. You look at that situation and ask, what can I learn? What's the meaning? And lastly, you ask that question, what's the creative opportunity? So you can choose, make a new, new choice. That's the first piece. That's reframing. Okay. I like that. And what's interesting there about looking for the creative opportunity, when you look at how many companies today were created because they, you know, that, 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 uh, founder had a problem that he needed to solve exactly. and and in some cases he wasn't even you know he or she wasn't even thinking that i'm going to make this into a business i just had to solve this problem and then of course they realized hey there's actually a market out here there's other people who are having this problem so i love this idea of uh, of you know looking for the creative opportunity okay so look people aren't loving this I, I, you know some people find this controversial that that jeff bezos is now taking I think a look at Sears and some yeah. other of these large, you know, box retailers that are, have gone dark and may not emerge from bankruptcy and all that kind of thing and wanting to use that huge space for distribution. But that's exactly what he's, he's looking at the creative opportunity. You look at a company like Kodak, the day that Kodak was filing for bankruptcy, Instagram was raising like $2 billion. Right. So you know, Kodak were, the, were the, the early adopters. They were, in fact, the patent holders for so much of the digital technology that has changed the world, and yet they're not around. So at the time when they were, when they were you know, sort of most feeling um, under threat and were, were reacting to that threat in a way that was to protect themselves through bankruptcy, there were other companies that were going to utilize their technology, their, their innovations, to change the world that are still that are still operating today. So again, there's a creative opportunity in every situation, but the leader, the best leaders, are are able to reframe. So they they can pause, they can find meaning, and yes, they can choose the creative opportunity over over some other decision that they could also make. All right. So that's reframe, and the next step is to reset. Reset. Talk about which is really just two things. Resetting is. And to me, the, the most uh, the, sort of the simplest example of what a reset looks like is you're in your car, you're driving someplace and you make a wrong turn. Now you got your GPS set. So, you know, you're going someplace and you make a wrong turn. What does your GPS do? Reroute. It says you idiot, right? That's what your GPS. My GPS calls that. He goes, it's like your father said. Your father always told you never follow directions. You're just always thinking, you know what? <laughs> like your GPS doesn't do that. It's not judging you. Right. We do that. Yeah. Your GPS simply recalculates and it says recalculate. So the first piece of a reset is to recognize you got to recalculate. Hey, you make a little change. That's the second piece is how you recalibrate. The small changes in life, in other words. You, you cannot change the, the input without changing the output. It's the butterfly effect. Even the smallest change creates a, a long-term change in the system. It, it even creates the possibility for transformation. And so what most organizations and, and a lot of individuals do as well is they play it safe. They play the status quo card because that's what they know. That's the devil they know versus 
disrupting the status quo themselves. And instead of wait, instead of disrupting on their own, they wait till the market disrupts them and then they have less, even less control. So the second step is to reset, which means recalculate and recalibrate. Just basically find a new route to get to where you want to go yeah. and make small changes along the way so that you don't have to, you don't have to do something drastic. I mean, some people, they are buying into that sunk cost fall fallacy that they believe that they've got so much that's already invested in a particular model or in a particular system or a way of being or an org structure, a way of operating their, their, their organization, um, that they, that they overlook the opportunity to make these tiny little, you know, it's almost like 1% changes, you know, this progress over perfection kind of thing. Yeah. And so when we work with organizations, often we go right to that piece of their mindset where they're so stuck in the status quo, they're afraid to make mistakes and they don't recognize that to change something long-term, all you have to do is change a few things, make, make a few small changes in the present. Yeah. You know, you mentioned Kodak. I think it's a, it's a another example of, of, you know, uh, making a, what do you call it? Not resetting or recalibrate. My lips are wearing out, but <laughs> I also think of Blockbuster. Blockbuster, yes. here they are. They are the big dog everywhere, four or 5,000 stores globally. And oh. they even met with Netflix, not once, but twice. And they still couldn't recalibrate. They couldn't yes. reset because they didn't want to disrupt the, the status quo. They, they were like, well, you know, this Netflix is too small. They're never going to be a, anything to us, blah, blah, blah. You know, and, and uh, anyway, they're gone. Yeah, they didn't want to cannibalize their existing business. It was the same thing with Polaroid, same thing. You know, they, they, their pay structures, the comp plans that were set up were, were really uh, rewarding where they were producing income at the time. And so they, they didn't want to cannibalize and, and ultimately left it for somebody else to hand them their lunch, which is what happened. <laughs> All right, so we've covered reframe, reset. The last one is? Oh, regenerate. We Which, did. how could you forget that? So this is back to the Rocky story. And, and, and this is really the important thing is that all of our research, we've many, many HBR uh, studies, we've ourselves assessed thousands and thousands of employees. We have a, a resilience assessment tool. I can, I can give you access to that later if you like. It's entirely uh, free for people to find out in about three minutes where they stand mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually on this resilience scale. But what we found is that resilient people and let's say leaders of organizations have something in common with the most uh, successful athletes in the world, the Olympian, Olympic gold medalists and the, and the best professionals. You have one thing in common and that one thing is that they have rituals for recovery. Because all of the research that we've done as well as looking at, at study after study says that resilience is about how you recover, not about how you endure. So this is not actually about getting the night owl award because ultimately everything shows that when you push people that far, when we push ourselves that far, our performance actually goes down. It degrades. So Olympic athletes don't run the marathon the day before they're supposed to compete, right? They don't, they don't, they don't uh, deprive themselves of sleep or nutrients or hydration or any of the most important things when they realize they're about to perform for an Olympic medal. Right. But yet we go into the office, whether it's the virtual office or physically, and we are routinely not at our best. We're routinely at 70% or some people that, you know, 
organizations and individuals we study are routinely between 60 and 70% of capacity. Yeah. Now, and it's like if you had 100 employees, right? I was right? going to say even 30%. I mean, look, right now, there is like this weird thing that I cannot explain where people are bragging about, you know, working 60 hours a week, getting no sleep, and this is my third uh, energy drink. Dude, right. you're on the wrong path. Yeah, well, they're on a path to, to hitting, hitting a serious wall. They just may not know it yet. Yeah. And so, the, again, the studies are clear. They're not at their best. I, I was often when I, I speak to groups, we do a lot of keynote speaking and, and facilitate workshops. I start with this story about when I was 19 years old and I was a lifeguard on the beach, Jones Beach, Long Island. And that summer, that first summer I was working there, we heard three whistles. I actually have my old lifeguard whistle right here with me now. And we heard these three whistles. And the three whistles were a signal that we had lost somebody. Mm. It happened to be that it was in the adjacent beach, but our captain gathered us together and said they lost someone at field three, which was the field right next to us. And it was going to be a search and rescue. And we were in the water for more than an hour searching for this guy and we didn't find him. And it was devastating to see his family heartbroken, to, to just feel like, like we had failed. You know, we were all one, one big lifeguard crew and this guy went down on our watch. He went down in our water. So we determined that day that we were never going to let anybody go down on our watch again. I worked there for seven more summers and we had hundreds of thousands of people on the beach in the weekends. I mean, hundreds of thousands. We we're making hundreds of rescues each and every day when there were rip currents and the, and the surf was strong in the Atlantic Ocean there. Um, and we never lost anybody again. And the reason for that was because we actually learned how to become resilient. We learned how to take care of ourselves, to take care of each other, to have each other's backs. We had a culture that had each other's backs and more than ego, more than anything, uh, certainly more than politics, we had one job and that job was to make sure that we never lost anybody again. And our record was impeccable. So, you know, when you look at, if you could be impeccable in your business, if you could have your employees not show up at 60% or have 60 of a hundred show up, right? What would, what could your business do? What, what, you know, how many lives could it, could it positively impact? If you could show up at your best that way. And so that's what resilience is about. It's, it's not about surviving something. It's about how you turn things around to create momentum so that you can actually thrive. And that's just, it's a different mindset entirely. Sure. Well, I, I, lo I love the idea of, about the recovery. And that is so important for us to recover. So, so let me ask this. I want to move on because we're short on time. Uh, you talk about the four areas we need to build uh, in order to have a, a stronger, better resilience. So, so talk about that. What are the four areas? Well, it's, it's again, it's mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual. But when it comes to rituals, what we're talking about is what are the kind of rituals that you can create in each of those areas? And I use the word rituals just to be clear, not in a spiritual sense. I believe that we have to ritualize to habitualize. You know, ultimately, what does habit look like? It's the, it's the hand that you pick up the toothbrush. You don't think about it. You just brush your teeth in the, with that hand. And so right now, for people to make changes, they've got to become more conscious. That's why our, our podcast is called The Conscious Pivot, because it's about how it is that you actually become consciously aware of what you're doing and why you're doing it and make small changes. So when it comes to mental resilience, you've got to bake rituals into your day to create some, some things that will help you to actually regenerate. To, re to rest, to recover, so that you can not only perform 
at your best. You can perform better than your best even, but that you can do that over lengths of time. That's everything from the mindfulness that, that you can bring to the day, stillness practices, other practices that help you to just be more mentally resilient. In many ways, it's about how it is that you get rid of the constant cognitive arousal that we're addicted to when it comes to our, our cell phones and other devices, et cetera. On the emotional side, it's the same thing. It's creating rituals that help you to actually let go of things, let go of certain angers, let go of ways of thinking and being that are in many ways irrational that come from the time that we're very, very young. Right. When it comes to our physical rituals, it's everything from the 20-minute rest that you can take in the middle of the day to actually turn your afternoon into a more productive time than your morning was without the use of coffee or sugar. It's things like the rest that you're getting at night, the water that you're drinking, the other forms of hydration that you can get, the foods that you're eating, the, the simple light exercise that you can do in the day to, again, regenerate the dendrites of your brain, to open up neuropathways so that you can be more productive, more innovative, that you can be at your best. I know for me, I was a lawyer for 18 years. And in the afternoons, typically, I was, uh, I was not a happy person. My, my energy would start to fade. I'd take that next cup of coffee or I'd eat something. I was never really a sugar sweet guy. But, but I was, uh, my temper was shorter in the afternoon. I wasn't somebody you really wanted to be around. You know, and it's like, there's a lot of people that are, are managing themselves. Just to manage yourself. You think about this, Bert. When we get in a kind of a not so great mood, we know that we're not in a great mood. We know our attitude isn't best. And right. we've got to work with team members. We've got to, maybe we have an enrollment conversation. There's a sales conversation. Whatever is going on, we got to be in a, and now we're willing ourselves to do it. Do you know how much energy it takes to do that? Yes. It takes more energy to actually get control of you and your attitude than it does to actually perform better in that situation that we're looking to, to be our best in. So it's just, it's like reallocating resources. And on the spiritual side, it's, again, it's not about religion. It's about becoming aligned with the things that are most important to us. So if our values, for example, are that we want to spend a lot, of, we love our family, we love our kids, we love our spouse, whoever, you know, and you don't spend any time with those people or every time you're with them, you're, you're at work, meaning you're constantly looking at your phone, you're constantly uh, in meetings or, or you're, you're talking about business at every, every meal. It's like there's a disconnect between what you say is important to you, your values, and what, what, is actually the, what you're actually doing. And so this assessment, as I said, we have this three minute assessment. There are four questions in each area, it takes no time at all to, to, uh, to access this. And one of those areas has to do with what we're talking about now. How it is that you're, you're sort of uh, deviating from what it is that you, you truly feel is important to you. And ultimately, the energy that it takes inside of you to reconcile those mixed emotions, if you will, it's, it's draining, it's depleting, it's sure. exhausting. Sure. I mean, you know, it's interesting that you, that you talk about uh, uh, being a lawyer in the past because, you know, there's, there's literally tens of thousands of stories out there of people who will tell you they, were, they weren't living th their life, right? They, they had gone, they, they had, uh, I have a, a, a client of mine that uh, he became a doctor because that's what his parents wanted him to do. And he's actually, you know, he's quite good at it. And he still has a medical license. He's, uh, he's, an, he's got an active medical license. But his passion was being a stand-up comic. Yeah. And so after getting his medical license and working with his dad side by side, he finally said, I'm going to go do what I want to do now. 
And he says, if I fail at being a comedian, I can always go back to being a doctor. And, you know, he's, he's, he's not gone back to a, 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 what do you call it, practicing medicine uh, for now a couple of decades. But there's, there is that, uh, what do you call it, there, there, again, tens of thousands of people who are uh, using your terminology. They're not in line with their values, right? Yeah. And for whatever reason. And, and, and you know, over time, that's going to wear you out. That sucks your energy. The book I wrote, Pivot, which is funny, I'm wearing this shirt that says Pivot today, but um, the art and science of reinventing your career life is all about how it is that you, you create the foundation to make change, to make change in your life, whether it's the change because you realize you're miserable like I was. I used to pe put my feet on the floor in the morning and my first thoughts of the day were, were sort of anxious, angsty thoughts, I, I, even thoughts of dread. Um, I ended up in the hospital one Saturday thinking I was having a heart attack. And fortunately, fortunately for me, the doctor said, no, you're fine physically. You're not having a heart attack. You're having an anxiety attack. That's what's happening for, you know, and that's, you know, 15 years into the practice of law. And when I decided that I wanted to explore what else was possible for me in my life, I didn't jump ship. I didn't come home one day and tell my wife, you know, we have four kids, we have cars, houses, two big dogs, gerbils, goldfish. I mean, a lot of responsibilities. I didn't come home and tell my wife, we're going to move to Fiji and I'm quitting my job. It took two and a half years, but that was the pivot. I was able to have a midlife calling instead of a midlife crisis. And that was, you know, that's what the book is about for people that are in transition, whether, you know, because of the current pandemic and all the issues that are going on there, or it's because like me, um, at a certain point, you just realize as you're looking in the mirror, you're selling, you're selling yourself short. And maybe even worse. Like I, I, I felt like a fraud because I was doing it for the money at, at a certain point. The only reason I was still practicing law wasn't because I had a burning passion to do it anymore. It was because it was taking care of, you know, responsibilities of life, which is nothing wrong with that. But at a certain point, it was, uh, it was just hurting too much to continue down that path. Absolutely. You know what? I've met some people who they were, they were in their job and they did it quite adequately and they were there that was part of their plan. I'm going to do this job for 20 years. I'm going to retire with a little bit of a cushion and then I'm going to do what I want. And, uh, and if you can do that, if that is your journey, great hats off to you. But I think those days are really gone. I mean, the chances of you staying with the company for 20 years are probably very, very, very slim. But so listen, let me ask you this. I, I want to talk about, uh, uh, you mentioned that, um, uh, no, I take that back. I want to ask you this. How can people determine how resilient they are right now and where they need to grow or improve to become more resilient? Well, first and foremost, again, I think you have to pause. You've got to just ask yourself the question because if you're asking that question, you're already in a better place than a lot of people who are completely oblivious to the fact that resilience is something you can develop at any age. You can train it in others. So that's why when we speak to organizations, it's about how do you develop resilient cultures that can go the distance? So even if people aren't as resilient as they could be, you can do something about that. Because often people think you're born with it. Some people are just, you know, some people are more resilient than others. That's kind of the, the thing. But if you go to client.resiliencculture.com, client.resilience with a CE, culture.com, three minutes you can take this assessment. And to answer your question, Bert, find out where you are currently mentally in terms of your mental resilience, your, your emotional resilience, your physical resilience, and, and even the spiritual side of things. 
Um, because the first step in any change is simply awareness. And then the second step is understanding and, and being resourced to make changes. And so nothing's for sale, but what we do send people is their actual score, a breakdown of what the score means, most importantly, and what they can do to make small changes. Because again, I'm a big believer that um, if you just said to me, hey, Adam, um, you know, you're going to quit your job now. You're not happy. You got to quit your job. I would never have done that. I wasn't right. going to put my family at risk. I wasn't going to, I'm not built that way. Right. But over the course of two and a half years, which, you know, was a fairly long period of time, I guess, in some respects and short because it went so quickly, I reinvented my career path and, and have never looked back from that financially or otherwise. And I, you know, after 18 years of practicing law, I speak to lawyer groups all the time. I work for law firms. They bring me in to help their people, you know, not be so miserable, right? Because lawyers and doctors are at the top of the freaking list in terms of suicide, in terms of abuse of all kinds, you know, alcohol and drug abuse, substance abuse of all kinds, um, because there's, there's this, this sort of misery and it doesn't have to be there. Like if I knew then what I know now, I didn't even need to leave the practice of law. You don't have to leave your job. Right. That's an option, but you don't have to. I just had no, I was so under-resourced that I, I just said to myself, if I don't do something, I'm, I walked in the house one night after having missed my kids going to bed for the umpteenth time, like missed right. dinner and then missed even kissing them goodnight. I walked in, I walked straight up to my wife and I said, if I keep doing what I'm doing, you're going to be a widow. You know, you can't take those words back. It's like, you know, you drop that bomb. It's so... Uh, yeah, we, we just needed to figure it out. We did. And that's what led to the book. And, and more importantly, now we, we've learned what it takes to be resilient so that you have more options within your organization. Or if you're going to step out and become an entrepreneur, well, great. You know, we, we support that as well. I mean, we all have our, our own journey to live and, and it doesn't look the same. It shouldn't right. look the same. And it's definitely you're right. When your mom or your dad tell you it's supposed to look one way, it could look like that, but it doesn't have to. That's right. It doesn't have to. All right, real quick, give out the, the link again. It's client.resilient.culture. Nope. Client.resilienceculture.com. And people that want to find out more about me or the book Pivot, they can go to adammarkell.com. I love it when we connect on LinkedIn. And again, we, we love to... We love the opportunity to speak to organizations in particular because that's a huge ripple effect for us when we can help them to pivot their culture toward resilience. I mean, not, not just toward it on an intellectual level, but from the standpoint of how the leadership is actually modeling what it looks like. That's how, how things change organically inside an organization. And then everybody's life is better. You know, you see not only productivity increase, but people will stay longer. Millennials will stay longer, especially when they know that you have their back. I mean, we have millennial age kids, so they just won't stay any place these days where they think that the organization isn't, isn't looking out for them. All right. So let me ask you this, because at the top of the show, you talked about, you know, about what's, what we're going through right now. We have this pandemic and, you know, we have massive layoffs and, you know, just all sorts of craziness. So how... Um, what can we do? Uh, give us maybe a strategy, uh, one simple thing that we can all do right now to help build our resilient, uh, to, to help build uh, our resilient relationships, uh, teams, organizations. What, what, 
what strategy do you here's, have? Here's the best thing I can do. Okay. Create a recovery map for yourself. Ooh. And, and that's what we do when, when we do workshops with people. We show them how to create one. I'm going to skip to the end and just simply say this. Commit. Commit to one small change. And I mean a tiny change. We're, we're talking about like 1%, the smallest domino you could think of. All right. That's how easy we want to make it in all four of those areas. So what's one thing that you could do to just increase your mental resilience? It could be that you sit for five minutes in the morning to just be still. I'm a, I'm a crappy meditator. When I did my Ted talk, I put that out there to the world. I'm a shitty meditator, but it's like even five minutes of stillness, it, it provides so many benefits to you. So that's a tiny little change. Maybe it's one minute. So what's that mentally? What's one thing you could do emotionally? It might be that instead of getting worked up by watching the news before bed, you simply read a paragraph in a book or you write something instead of, instead of consuming more, more of that, that negative news kind of thing. What's one thing you can do physically? As I said, take a 20 minute walk in the middle of the day, 20 minutes. That's it. The health benefits from 20 minutes walking are profound. One tiny change spiritually. What, what's something that you can do to, to, feel as though you are living more in alignment with your greater values, with your greater purpose, even one tiny little change. So that's your recovery map. And here's the last piece of that. You make that one commitment in each of those four areas and you ask one person that's close to you to hold you accountable. Now, the best thing is that when, when we're doing this organizationally, we'll follow up 30, 60, 90 days later. And the people that are holding each other accountable are actually people in the program. And that makes it work even you know, better because everybody knows why we're doing it. So if you don't have somebody that you can sort of get to buy in to do their own recovery map, just ask somebody to check in with you once a week. That's it. A simple email that says, so let me know how you're doing in these four areas. So if what you said was, for example, that I'm going to drink more water each day, that's it. Tiny little change. I'm going to drink one glass more water a day. That person is going to check in with you once a week to just find out, okay, so on that side of things, how'd you do this week? You know what? Three of the five days, I actually drank more water that day. And the other two days, I was in my head and I was drinking coffee. I, you know, whatever. And there's no recrimination. There's no judgment. It's just somebody that's going to look in on you and say, I, you know what? I got your back. That's it. A yeah. recovery map. I love it. A recovery map. I, I, I'm really turned on by this idea of having a recovery uh, a recovery map or recovery strategy uh, because we're all focused on go, 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 go. And nobody talks about recovery. So I love this idea. This one strategy could save people from having an anxiety attack. Yes. <laughs> or worse. Honestly, in June, the statistics are pretty stark. We have uh, four kids from 28 to 19 in the group, 18 to 24 age group, 18 to 24, one in four surveyed, we're considering suicide in the month of June. Wow. It is a shocking statistic when you think about that. What that means, where, where, where young people are at right now. So the level of anxiety uh, is, is with so many of us so frequently. It's become like you know, a, uh, a constant companion in some respects. So yeah, we really have to look out for each other right now. And I couldn't agree with you more, Bert, that to speak about it, to inform people, uh, to think of it in terms of recovery. Yeah. That that's so much more important than, than, than people just thinking, I got to muscle my way through this. I got to endure what's going on and get to the other side, you know, kind of white knuckling the whole experience, which is not how we're supposed to live. It's definitely not how we thrive. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and I like the idea also uh, of just tiny, itty bitty change, you know, uh, drinking more, you know, drinking that extra glass of water, taking time to maybe just walk for a few minutes, uh, you know, at, instead of watching more TV, turn to a book or write in a journal or do something else. Tiny little changes that, that cost no money, that minimal amount of time, doesn't require more technology. So. Right. Hey, if, we, I, I, if, if we've got time for it, I'll give you one ritual that you can start the day with, but you it, let me know. Yeah, All right, yeah. so here it is. I call this the code of conduct. And I've been doing this every day for about 12 years. And so it starts out by writing down. So everybody starts by writing and they write, I experience, and then you put a blank, you know, like a line today. I experience, and then you fill in the blank today. And so I created 13 initial experiences when I first started to think about doing this. And the whole idea was I wanted to be the conscious creator of my own experience of living. And what else is there, right? So I thought I'm going to do this at the beginning of the day and then check in at the end of the day to see if that's the kind of day I actually had. So I always start with the same one. I experience gratitude today. Ooh. And I, I immediately sink into what am I grateful for, right, in this moment. And there's so many things. It's almost like I got to stop myself because I can go on a while. I sit with the gratitude thing for a couple of seconds or a couple of minutes, and then I move on. And the next one is I experience showing up with a positive and harmonious attitude today because attitude is so important. And I want to be, I want to be positive. I want to be harmonious. I don't want to, you know, so that's, I, you know, I, I begin with that experience and I keep going. I experience forgiveness today. I experience miracles today. I experience faith and faith, having faith in my faith today. I experience being a powerful creator of solutions today. Wow. You know, and you could, you could create any experiences that you want, but you start with your own list. Mine were 13. You could start with five. You could start with 10, whatever you like. And the whole idea is you write them down. And then tomorrow morning when you wake up, before you, you get involved with things on email or social media, or you even get coffee if you can help it, you sit down and you go quietly by yourself and you read through them. And then you can say them out loud or not say them out loud. And then you don't have to trust me on this. All I want you to do is create those experiences, read them, focus on them for a few minutes, and then check in at the end of the day and see if how many of those things were actually your experience of being, not doing, but your experience of being for the day and see how that works. Because it's, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy that when you start with that, whatever you want to call them, your, your intention, but it's, it's really much more, um, I would say, a commitment than anything else. It's not just sort of like I have a great intention, but this is a commitment to experience living this way. You check in again at the end of the night, you'll see that the two are very similar. And what's great is that where you look and you go, you know what? I said I was going to experience being peaceful today. And I got into arguments one after, you go, well, now I know exactly where my day went sideways. You don't have to wonder about it. It's right, right there on the paper. Yeah. No, I love it. I love it. I mean, talk about, uh, as, Simple. You, as you mentioned, creating your, your future, right? Creating your perfect day with this code of conduct. I wrote that down, code of conduct. Man, there, we've, uh, we've uh, experienced so much today. Adam, I want to say thank you so much. And I want to uh, give out your... your um, your website here, it's adammarkel.com. And I'm going to put all the links 
uh, here in the show notes so you guys can click on them and go there and try the, uh, the uh, what do you call it, the uh, quiz. I think that quiz is going to be super helpful. Yes. And then, if, of course, if you want to get the book or maybe you want to talk to Adam about uh, a keynote or, or anything else, all the, everything will be in the, uh, in the uh, notes below. Adam, thank you so much for stopping by. It's been an absolute blast. I love it, Bert. Thank you so much for having me. Man, I hope you enjoyed Adam Markell today. The guy just dropped so much useful information. I hope you will apply it. I hope you'll try out some of these strategies and techniques. Hopefully, you'll go to client.resiliencculture.com. Try that out. And again, check the notes below to get the different links. My friends, again, thanks so much for stopping by. If there's a video that you want me to make, let me know. I want to serve you with the information that you want to receive. So just let me know what kind of video you want, what topic you want to talk about. And also, please smash the like button, subscribe, and share this video with everyone you know. Let's help as many people as possible so they can become more resilient, so they can have more experiences and just ultimately have a more fulfilling life. Remember, my friends, you were created to succeed.